So everything has a beginning place. You had a beginning place. Some of you began on purpose, and some of you began by accident, but we all had a beginning place. This morning, we're going to be teaching throughout this series, a series that was written by Andy Stanley, and we're going to teach that as accurately as possible. This has had a powerful impact on Cole and myself, and we know it's going to be powerful for you as well. Everything has a beginning place. Romance has a beginning place. Some of you remember the time of your first love. You remember that. You were nine years old. It was your cousin, and you moved on, <laughs> I hope. Your career had a beginning place. Your marriage had a beginning place. Parenting, for you, also a beginning place. Everything has a beginning place. We forget sometimes that our faith also has a beginning place. It does. Your faith has a beginning place. For most of us, our faith beginning place happened somewhere around the time we were a child, and it happened probably through a conversation that we had with a parent or a priest or maybe a pastor. Your faith's beginning place, your starting place, it had something to do with what you heard maybe at church or at a temple or wherever you were. It had something to do with a place like a church. But somewhere back in your childhood, you were handed these building blocks of faith. That's where your faith journey began. Or maybe for you, maybe for you, you really weren't handed anything in the beginning for your faith journey. Maybe you kind of just pulled it together and built what your understanding was because you kind of put it together yourself from your own experiences, maybe disappointments, some of your joys. But somewhere back in your childhood, you began your faith journey. That's where it all started. There was a beginning place. And for many of us, as a child, our beginning place looked something like this. The first thing we were taught, maybe, was that God is good. Somewhere, someone told you along the way that God is good. And, and you even uh, had a prayer to go with that. Didn't we have one? And it went something like this. God is what? Good. God is great. Let us thank him for what? Absolutely. We learned that as a child. And somewhere along the way, we also learned that God punishes evil and he rewards good. So you better be good, little boy and little girl, is what you learned, because God rewards good people, not the bad. And depending upon your background and what you grew up, uh, that might have been used to scare the, um, the underworld out of you, <laughs> right? It may have. And somewhere along the line, we added to that knowledge that God also answers prayer. Because regardless of your faith tradition and how you grew up, we were told that we could talk to God and God would answer our prayers. So all of us had a beginning place. And the tradition that I grew up in, we were told lots of Bible stories. I loved them. I even had at my home, I had an old rec hand-me-down record player, and I had a stack, a whole album of turn the page to pull out a different record, you know, a whole album full of all Bible stories. And when I was a kid, I would put that on my record player, and I would listen to it before I went to bed. I loved it. I loved that. And so you were probably told some stories as well as you were growing up as a child. But then then something happens. We get older. And the beginning place of our faith when we were children, it takes a hit. And now as we become adults, for some of us, honestly, maybe most of us, our childhood faith, well, it doesn't do so well under the rigors and the pressures of adult life. And those stories that meant so much to us as children, they began, uh, well, they begin to fall apart as we become an adult. And the foundation that we thought was so firm, it doesn't support us as we get older. Sure, we know God is good, but man, there sure is a lot of bad things in this world that God doesn't really seem to do anything about, just lets them happen, right? We're like, God, where are you? You know, where are you? you? I was told, God, that you were good, and I want to believe that you're good. I want to believe that, but it's hard to reconcile a good God in the midst of this bad world in which we live. And God, I, I know, I was taught, I know that you are supposed to reward good, and you're supposed to punish evil, God. But man, 
there's a whole lot of evil that seems to get rewarded, and there's good that seems to always go punished. In fact, God, there's even a lot of good that's in my life that doesn't get rewarded at all. What's up with that? For you, maybe you're thinking, yeah, 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 my my marriage didn't turn out so well. But you were told, perhaps, that if you did these right things, that good stuff would happen. And you did those right things, and the good stuff didn't happen. And you heard that, yes, God answered prayer, but maybe he didn't answer your prayer. Maybe he didn't answer your mother's prayer about your brother. And you're like, God, what's up? My mom's one of the best people I know, and yet my brother died anyway. So you're not sure what to do with that. Sometimes our childhood faith, which is a faith that began, uh, uh, it started so real, and then came the pressures of adulthood, and then came life, and slowly that faith got chipped away, piece by piece, and sometimes it chips to the point where it just doesn't exist anymore. In fact, right now, you may be thinking and hoping that I might say something today that could possibly reignite a faith that you had, but you left it a long time ago. Not because you really wanted to leave that faith, but it just didn't seem relevant in the world in which you lived as an adult. I want to read to you a quote by Karen Armstrong in a work that she wrote, Case for God. Listen to what she said. Many of us have been left stranded with an incoherent concept of God. We learned about God. We learned about, uh, we learned about the same time we were told about this, about Santa Claus. But while our understanding of Santa Claus, that phenomenon evolved and matured, our theology remained somewhat infantile, not surprisingly, We attained an intellectual maturity, and many of us rejected God that we had inherited, and we denied that he existed. Karen Armstrong in The Case for God. Somehow, as everything else in our lives matured, for many of us, our view of God didn't mature. As everything around us, the Bible stories that were told to us as children, they did not mature. And it left us with some irreconcilable differences with religion. There was a gap between what we experienced in our teenage and adult life and what we were told to believe as children. And we didn't mean to leave that faith behind. We never made a decision that said, I'm going to walk away and not believe anymore. It just seemed, as we grew older, it just seemed less and less relevant to our lives. You would read those stories, those same stories that you read as a child. Maybe you would read them to your children. And you would begin to think in the back of your head, I I don't know. So because of that phenomenon right there, Cole and I have decided that sometimes adults often need a new beginning place. So what we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to hit the begin again button and we're going to ask the question, what if, what if right now I didn't know anything, where would I begin a faith journey? What if I hadn't heard those stories, where would I begin? What if I had never read the Bible? What would I do to begin a faith journey? And what if we had never gone to church? Where would we begin? Where would we begin if we were beginning, as it relates to our faith, all over again, and specifically with the Christian faith? So we're going to hit that button in this series, that begin again button, and we're going to begin all over, and we're going to do that together every week through this series, the next eight weeks. We're going to hear some new things during this series, and we're going to hear some challenging things during this series. And my hope is this, for many of you, um, 
where there might be a gap between your childhood faith and your adult struggling faith, where you want to believe and you want to be able to reconcile the adult world with your faith, my hope is that you will find that they are actually easily reconcilable. But we're going to have to approach this a little differently. Uh, perhaps, perhaps not the approach that you used as a child. Because beginning again with faith as an adult would be very, very different from beginning as a child. Now, here's the problem, though. This is a problem. In Christianity, growing up, we were taught the Bible. Now, before you walk out, <laughs> that in and of itself is not the problem. The problem is perhaps the way we were taught the Bible. Because if you grew up in a home like I did or a culture in which I grew up, I heard that this was the Word of God, and I've always believed that. And I heard that this was infallible, and I've always believed that too. And I've heard that this was inerrant, that there were no mistakes, and I believe that. And I heard that this was inspired from Genesis through maps, right? And as a child, we would say to that, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. And Adam and Eve and Moses were all on equal terms. But unfortunately, because the Bible was presented to us as a book, which it is not, and because it was presented to us as a holistic thing, which it is not, and because we never understood where this came from, it became a house of cards. You pull away any one of those things that we were taught as a child as a foundational piece, and suddenly the whole thing comes crashing down. And then for some of us, this happened in high school. For some of us, this happened in college. We went off to school, and we were taught. We were taught by somebody at school, in college or in high school, maybe even that although this is sacred, maybe they said that it wasn't scientific. And we began to have questions. They said it was something to appreciate, but maybe they told us it's not factual. And we began to process that. And even though there were stories here that uh, were inspirational, inspirational, maybe they said to us that they weren't necessarily true. And we began to process that. And then we experienced life. And there we began to have more and more distance between what we experienced in this life and what we grew up believing as a child. Even if you grew up in a home where the Bible was revered, rarely did we see it read. In fact, this Bible that I have up here on the stage with me, this Bible is from the 1800s. It's one of those family Bibles that you fill in all the information uh, about your family tree and who got married when and what babies were born when, right? You, you know those, you've seen those in somebody's grandma's house, right? But actually this Bible, we pulled out of a dumpster. And a dumpster in Stuttgart. Now you're saying, Harley, why were you in the dumpster? Long story. <laughs> Don't have time for that today. This was pulled out of a dumpster in Stuttgart. But there was something about me even that saw that there, and it's like, we can't leave this in the dumpster because of the way I was raised. It was one of those books that was there, and you saw it there, but you never really saw anybody reading it. It was a book that you never would place anything on top of, but you never really learned to read it for yourself either. And you went to a church where someone would open it week after week and they would, and they, you know, you knew what they were saying was important and, but you never really then went home and read it for yourself or understood it for yourself. And then you went into an environment, possibly at school or in college, an environment that didn't respect it, that would have left it in the dumpster, and suddenly your childhood faith 
that beginning place that you had that seemed so relevant back then when you were in vacation Bible school, suddenly it all went away. Here's what I think. Here's where we're going for the next few weeks. Here is how we're going to challenge you. And here is where very possibly I may be misunderstood today, but I think it's worth the risk. Here's where you might be tempted to walk out, but please don't walk out. The Bible says is not an adequate beginning or a returning point for many adults. For many adults, it's not enough to say, okay, let's restart your faith. Let's begin again. Now, open your Bibles. The Bible says... See, you already did that. You grew up with that. You might be thinking, I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about what's happening at my job. I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about my divorce. I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about what's happening with my children. I know what the Bible says, but let me tell you about my unanswered prayer. So when it comes down to it, the Bible says is not an adequate place to begin again with your faith. It was adequate when you were a child, but it may not work for you as an adult. But here's the good news, and I I hope this will be reassuring for you. And here's where we're going to go today for the next few minutes. As we begin this series, the Bible says was never intended to be the beginning place for Christian faith. It wasn't the beginning place when Christianity began. So what we're going to do today, we're going to, and over the next few weeks, this is going to be fun. And I hope you'll be here for every single part of this. You're going to have to put on your thinking cap with us. You're going to have to hang in there with us week after week and listen to what we're saying. Because if you're a a skeptic and and you wrote the Bible off a long time ago saying, "I, I just can't trust it, I just can't trust it, then you might have to rethink some of your thoughts. And for some of you who are today hoping, you're saying, oh, I hope, I hope I hear something from Harley. And in Malvern, they're saying, someone might be saying, I hope I hear something from Cole today that might reignite my faith. Then I think today and for the next few weeks, it is very possible that you might be pleasantly surprised. So here's the thing. In this, There's an Old Testament and there's a New Testament. Here's the thing. The New Testament, that's where we get everything that we know about Christianity. The New Testament wasn't put together in this form for about 350 years after the life of Jesus. In fact, the phrase New Testament doesn't even show up until 250 AD. That's like 220 years after Jesus walked this earth. So for 250 years, really, probably longer than that, but we're going to be conservative for about 215 years, nobody, nobody could say the phrase Well, it says in the New Testament, they couldn't say that. Now, there were a lot of documents, and there were letters, and there were biographies, and those had been passed around from church to church. But for the first 250, almost 350 years of Christianity, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people became Jesus' followers, but not because they heard the phrase, the Bible says. This is so important. Because there was no the Bible. There was an Old Testament, but there was no New Testament. Christians gathered, and they could not, for those hundreds of years, they gathered, but they could not say, now open your Bibles too. There wasn't one. 
for the first 250, almost 350 years, the beginning place of their faith had absolutely nothing to do with what we would recall, uh, refer to as the written word or the word of God as we call it today, the Bible. Because it didn't exist in that form. So this is an important question for us. For those people, those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, what was their beginning place? How did those people come to faith in Jesus without the Bible as we know it today? Here's what I believe. For many of us, the answer to that question, to their beginning, those hundreds and hundreds of thousands of hours, that place needs to be our beginning place as well. Because simply saying the phrase, the Bible says, and therefore you ought to, may not be adequate as a beginning place for some of our adults who are struggling with their faith. And although that's how your faith began as a child, nobody came along after them to help you move your faith along as an adult. So here's what we're doing today. We're going to listen in on a conversation between the Apostle Paul and a group of people who absolutely knew nothing about Jesus. They had never even heard of Jesus. And the conversation took place about 20 years after the events of Jesus' life. So, so that you can't like claim that I'm using circular reasoning, I, I want to clarify something. We are going to read a small portion of a document called ACTS, A-C-T-S. We're not reading from what we refer to as the Bible as we know it. I'm going to read from you, for you, from a document called ACTS that I believe was inspired, that God had provided for us. We're going to read what Acts is. It is a travel journal written by a man named Luke, who was also a doctor, and he traveled around from town to town, place to place, with this person called the Apostle Paul. And he wrote down information, details, facts about this journey, all the journeys that he had with Paul. We're going to look at the notes that he wrote down about Paul as they traveled around the Mediterranean and Paul was starting churches. Now, I, this is important to know. This document that we're going to be reading from, written by Luke, this man named Luke, was written before any of the biographies, or they're referred to as the Gospels. This document was written before any of those, written before uh, Matthew, before the Gospel or the biography of Mark, before probably even before Luke. He wrote this, what we're going to read first, very likely, and also before the, the, the book, the, the biography of John was written. So at the time that this was written, there was no New Testament. It did not exist in that form. They could not refer. The documents had not been written yet. There was no New Testament. So they could not refer to the words of Jesus that had been written down. They had not yet been written down. This man, Paul, he knew what he knew because of who he knew. This man, Paul, who knew what he knew about Jesus, not because of what he had read in the New Testament. No, it wasn't written yet. Not because of what he has read. He, what he knew about Jesus, he knew because of who he knew. Paul knew Peter. And Paul knew John. And Paul knew James, the brother of Jesus. And Paul knew about Jesus and that, and he lived around the people who knew Jesus. And Paul knew those people. It was important. He, he knew those people. Paul's information did not come from something he read. It came from people he knew. Because those people had spent 
a large portion of their lifetime with Jesus. Got it? So that's why this is so important. In fact, the writings of the Apostle Paul predate, that means they were written before the things we call the Gospels. So Paul does not even have those accounts to refer to in writing when he writes what he writes. Paul wrote somewhere around 53, 54 AD, somewhere in there. Nobody really disputes that. Everybody believes that there's a historical figure named Paul, and everybody believes that Paul wrote letters. There's some debate over which letters he did and did not write, but his primary letters, everybody agrees, his primary letters, Paul was the author of those, and he wrote those, they all agree, around the mid-50s. Not 1950, 1650s, 1550, no, 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 just 50. (laughs) The mid-50s. The first time 50s rolled around, that's it, on the AD calendar. And it was just a few years after the events of the life of Jesus, because Jesus was around AD 30, right? So now we have Paul writing, in Athens, Greece, on this occasion where we're going to pick up this uh, little snapshot of his life. And he's wandering around this place called Athens, and there's something very disturbing. Um, there with it, and he begins to have a conversation with some people in Athens about it. And Luke is there with, and he's recording this in his travel journal. And this is the conversation that he's recording. And now later, that became part of what we call the New Testament. Now, if you came from a from uh, from church, you know this. The Apostle Paul shows up on the scene with another name. In the pages of history, he shows up as Saul of Tarsus. And this guy they were calling Saul of Tarsus, who is Paul, he hated Christians. And his job, his whole career was at that point to stamp out Christians. But then he became one, <laughs> a Christian. Not because of something he read, but because of something that happened in his life. So we're going to drop in on this conversation that Paul is having. Now, from the top, I want you to know that my goal today is not to say that I want you to believe that something, that anything is true. My goal for today is for you to listen to how someone, some group of people who lived, who who knew nothing about Jesus, nothing about Jesus, and how this information about Jesus was presented to them, a group of people who had no idea who Jesus was, and especially in light of the fact that the Bible as we know it did not yet exist. People who had never heard, and they had no way to really read anything about it. Because this conversation is going to give us a beginning place for a Christian faith. So here we go. It's recorded in this travel journal called Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts 17, starting with 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, so he's in Athens, Greece, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, this is the same Athens, Greece that you can see today and you can go visit today. And Paul is looking around Athens, Greece, and he's seeing idols everywhere. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. In other words, the Greeks are some like some of the folks we talked about last week who were not Jews, but they decided to become Jewish, non-Jews who became Jewish. That's what he's describing there. As well as, he argued, in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So Paul is walking around and he's engaging people. It's not like he's uh, one of those street preachers with a megaphone and a sign. That's not really what's happening. He's engaging people in conversations about religion. And Athens is full of philosophers, so this was not hard to do. They were everywhere. It was easy. 
Verse 18 tells us, a group of Epicurean, which pretty much are people who thought, hey, you know, we can't figure all this out, this philosophy stuff, who cares anyway, let's just go have another glass of wine. <laughs> That's the Epicureans. So there were Epicureans there, and he says, Stoic philosophers, the Stoic philosophers are the ones, you can read their writings even today, they would say, hey, listen, if you give us enough time, we're going to figure this thing out with philosophy. So we're going to dot all the I's and we're going to cross all the T's. We're going to figure it out. So the Epicurean, the Stoic philosophers, and it says he began to debate with them. And don't, don't think of this as like a fight, all right? They're having conversations. This is how, how, they, how they did. So Paul finds a group of people who are willing to talk with him and engage with him at a deep level about religion and philosophy and new ideas, and then he goes, uh, Luke goes on. He describes, some of them ask, what is this babbler trying to say? In other words, th this was brand new. What they were hearing, they had never heard before. So they were beginning from the beginning. And then Luke describes others' remark, well, he seems to be ad advocating foreign gods. Now, this was a big deal. This was a big deal because um, if you were going to try to introduce a new god in Athens because there were so many already, you, you, they couldn't keep up with the number of gods they had. And if you were going to introduce a new god in Athens, you had to go get permission to do that. Because in the past, someone brought some ideas of some new gods, and it split the city, and, and they had civil war, and they were fighting over it. And they said, we're not going to let this happen anymore. If you want to introduce a new god or a new concept like this, you have to get permission first. So if you're going to do it, get permission. And here's what they said. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. This was the first time they had heard about this God named Jesus. Now, again, everything that Paul knew about Jesus came from other people who knew Jesus. Everything that Paul knew about the resurrection came from other people who had seen the risen Jesus themselves. At this point, nobody read anything about the risen Jesus. There was nothing to read. Verse 19, then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. So in other words, this new thing here, we want to know from the beginning. Start at the beginning and explain this to us. We've never heard any of this before, Paul. Start at the beginning. Now, here's a picture of the Areopagus. You can visit this place today. Um, it, well, it'll cost you a lot, but you can get there. The Areopagus, it's, uh, it is... The setting of the Areopagus is the hill called the Hill of Ares, which in Greek mythology, this is where Ares in mythology was put on trial for the murder of Poseidon's son. So in Athens, the place still exists today. In Athens, if you were to visit, you could actually stand where Paul stood. But here's why I'm making such a big deal out of this. What we're talking about is not an ancient story you heard as a child. This is something that happened. Somewhere where we know where it happened, where you can go to that place today. We have it recorded as history in this travel journal called Acts. It's a real thing, a real place. And the reason they took Paul to this place is because it was considered a place of judgment. It's where they would even have some civil trials and a judgment would be made. They would make decisions. If something were new and introduced to the city like Paul was doing, this is where the city council basically would decide, yes, you can tell other people about this or no, leave, you can't. And they took Paul there to decide whether or not they would allow him to spread this brand new idea that no one had heard about. Verse 20, they say, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. In other words, so Paul, listen, for our benefit 
And for the benefit of the city council, would you please begin from the beginning? Now, how cool is this? This is about 20 years after Jesus. And Paul now has the opportunity to explain to people who know nothing. They, he gets to explain to them the whole story. We are reading the beginning place of faith right now, right here. We're reading it, and it's recorded as history. Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully uh, at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, this is interesting. In Athens, they have altars everywhere to these gods. They didn't want to make any of the gods mad. So they would have altars to every single god that they were aware of just to keep those gods happy, to keep things straight, to keep everything going in their favor. And just in case they missed a god that they were not aware of, they built an altar and they put as the name to an unknown God. We didn't know this God's name. But just in case this God shows up and says, hey, where's my altar? We're going to say, oh, yeah, there you are. We've been expecting you. We just didn't know your name. It was just superstitious. But they, they wanted to be prepared. And here's what Paul said. And this is what he leverages his conversation off of. And this is, this is true of all religion. In all religion, there is uncertainty. Here's what I know, but then there's a whole lot of stuff I don't know. That's religion. Here's what I'm sure about, but I'm not so sure of all this other stuff over here. And that's why the Athenians, that's why in Athens, they had this altar to an unknown God. Listen, we're kind of that way too, you know? We really are. It's why some people show up for church at Christmas and Easter, just in case, right? Just in case. I, I don't want to make you mad. Just in case, I'm going to go Christmas, Easter. And Paul leverages his conversation off that. He's saying, listen, look. I can tell y'all are very, very religious, and you want to know what's out there, Paul is saying. You want to know, and you want to know that you, you know that somewhere out there, somehow there's something bigger than you, right? And he says this next. So you were ignorant of the very thing you worship. Now, Paul did, that is not a, a, a slam. The word ignorant, we've, we've misused it for years and years. That's not a slam. He's not saying you're dumb. He's saying, you just don't know. Because he was speaking to very intelligent philosophers. He was just saying, you don't know. In fact, you're just guessing. You're guessing. Come on, guys. Listen, you're just guessing, right? You're not certain about this. That's why you have this unknown God. That's why that's sitting here. You're guessing. You're uncertain. For the Athenians, that altar meant we don't know. The unknown, we don't know. It's the just-in-case God. Paul continues. Okay, then. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you, Paul says. So he's like, come on, guys. Let's, let's walk over to this altar. Think with me about this altar to the unknown God. I'm going to take the un off of unknown. And Paul begins. The God who made the world... Not the God who made the pantheon, not the Greek gods who are in the pantheon. No, 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 no. The one who did it all. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by human hands. In other words, uh, here, listen, guys, this unknown God is bigger than all the rest of your gods put together. In fact, you can't even build a temple that would be big enough to place this God in. He is so big, he would never fit in a temple that you could build. In other words, you know, you might find the most fantastic painting in the world, 
but you'll never find the painter in the painting. You might find the most incredible sculpture in the world, but you will never find the sculptor in the sculpture. You won't find it. The creator of the art is never in the art. And so it is with the world, Paul is saying. This big, fantastic world reflects the glory of God. It is not God. The good news is, he's saying, you can discover about him through his creation, but you won't find God in creation. He's too big. So guys, don't even worry about building a temple for this God. Verse 25, Paul says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. He's saying, listen, come on guys, in Athens, all your little itty bitty gods all over the place, I mean, yeah, every once in a while you drop off to them some incense and you'll leave some potato chips behind and some snacks. Listen, great. Maybe sometimes some gold and silver. You're always trying to bribe this little itty bitty God as if this God, this little God needs something from you in order so you can get what you want. And Paul is saying, let me tell you about this unknown God. He doesn't need any of that. This God, he doesn't need anything from you. This God gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Verse 26, from one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times and histories and the boundaries of their lands. Here's what Paul is saying. Listen, folks, this God, this unknown God is the sovereign God who's tied to all of history. Every bit of history of every nation includes this God, whether they admit it or not, including, the, including Athens right here where we are, he's saying. He's not the God of your house, the God of your real estate. He's not just the God of a nation. He's not just the Egyptian God or the Persian God or the Judean God. He is the God of all creation. And then look what Paul said, verse 27. God did this so they, and, and it's they, all people, not not one person, not one group, all people. He did this so they would seek, that seeking is religion, that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Now, this is so important. This little Greek word for this term, reaching out and finding him. This, this Greek phrase gives us the image, the visual image of someone groping around in the pitch black room looking for a light switch. They know it's there. They're just not sure. And they're looking around for the light switch. They can't see it. So they're searching. They're reaching out, trying to find the light switch in this dark room, knowing that it's there somewhere. He said, perhaps they will reach out to him and find him like they're looking in the dark. Though he is not far from any one of us, right? When you're in a room and you're looking for that light, you know it's there. You're just not sure where and you're searching and you're looking. Paul is saying God knew that his people would seek him and they would look around. And he says, look, people of Athens, look at all these idols. You are God seekers. You're doing exactly what God said you would do. You're seeking you want to know, and you want to know with certainty. But here, there's some uncertainty, and that's why you have an altar to the unknown God. And then Paul does something really cool. Paul quotes the written word. He does. Now, he does not quote the Bible because there was no New Testament to quote from. There was an Old Testament, but he doesn't even quote from the Old Testament. They wouldn't care anyway. They're Greeks. They weren't Jewish. They were not from Israel. They wouldn't care about the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written to the Israelites. Paul quotes 
from their own Greek philosophers. He digs into their culture and he says, listen, guys, you haven't missed this completely. You've got some of this right in Athens. Paul is saying, even some of your poets bumped into the truth about this in the dark. This unknown, this big, uh, unknown yet personal God. You are not far off from God. Here's what Paul says in verse 28. And he's quoting they're philosophers. I mean, a poet. For in him we live and move and have our being. That makes great scripture, but he's quoting a secular poet from their culture. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, he goes on, we are his offspring. So yeah, Paul is saying, listen, guys, People of Athens, you're not far away. You have touched on some of it. There's just more. Don't stop. There's more. So as some of your own poets said, we're his offspring. Therefore, he says, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In other words, it's not this thing y'all have made out of rock and stone and gold and silver. That's not God. Paul is saying, come on, guys, you can't make an image that reflects this big, grand, glorious God that I'm describing. Now, Paul digs here a little bit deeper. And this certainly applies to us in the United States today. In the past, Paul says... God overlooked such ignorance, but now, now this is huge. This is huge. Here's what Paul is saying. In the past, God understood that his people were seeking and searching like they were in the dark trying to find the light switch. In the past, God understood that they were blinded. In the past, God understood that there was darkness and this thing called religion, and they just didn't understand. They couldn't see. God understood that. In the past, he understood that people were seeking something more they just couldn't see. And so they built these temples, and they made images, and they burned incense and made sacrifices. In the past, God has kind of said, okay, Listen, I get it. I understand why you're doing that. But not anymore. Paul says, but now, and Paul says now, by now he means right now, this moment in my Paul's lifetime, at this moment, but now things are different. Because Not too far from this place where we're standing in Athens. Not too far from here, just over the way, just a few years ago, God did something. And it was not just for the people of Athens or the people of Egypt or the people of Persia or the people of Israel, but for the people of the entire world. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent Now, when we hear the word repent, we think Paul's talking about sin. Repent from sin. Sin hasn't even been discussed yet. It hasn't even been brought up yet. Paul, in this lecture, has not even mentioned sin. Paul is saying to change your mind. But now, God is saying, change your mind. Repent. Turn the other direction. Think a new way. Because now God has revealed himself, now that God has done something unusual just over there, just a few miles, let's sail over there and I could walk you to the spot right over there. He wants us now to rethink what God is really like because God has done something new. What has God done? They ask. And Paul answers, verse 31. 
For he has set a day when he, God, will judge the world with the justice by the man. Now, they know at this point who he's talking about because he has already told them about Jesus. That's why they have brought him to the Areopagus. They know he's talking about Jesus. By the man he has appointed. In other words, God has appointed this man because he is so wise, so powerful, so insightful. He is so godly that he will be able to rule the entire world with justice, which is an easy thing, easy thing for him to say. But God didn't just say it. Here's a big thing. And he has given proof to, of this to everyone. We've got to pause right here. They're listening. And they must be thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I was following you, Paul, but you just used the word proof. We live in a world of uncertainty. It's called religion. You're saying there is proof, Paul? Paul, you're telling us that there is proof in this religion that you're talking about? And listen, this is religion. Religion is confusing. Because look, they might be saying, Paul, you're even talking about our unknown God. This is confusing. We don't know. Yeah, 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 Paul, we do believe some things. We try to have faith, Paul, in something. We try to do the right thing and do what these gods we think they want us to do. And listen, we're just guessing. We don't know. We try to keep these gods happy. But you're saying this new thing that you're telling us about has proof? Don't you mean there's just some evidence that leads one to believe? Paul's like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about actual proof. Wait, Paul, you're introducing us to a God who created all of this and is bigger than all of this, and you're trying to tell us there is proof of this God? Paul, you're trying to tell us, you're telling, is that what we're hearing? That you're telling us that we can have certainty? And Paul is saying, Yes. That's why I even traveled all the way over here from my hometown to Athens. Yes, that's why I'm traveling, because there's proof. Because now, in this age, just, uh, just a few years ago, right over there, God gave us proof that God has done something amazing in this generation. Proof. Proof moves us from hope so, because that's just religion, to know so, that's confidence. And Paul tells us, okay, you want to know what God has done? What God has done so that you can have certainty. What is the proof, you're asking, that he has sent this man, this righteous judge who's righteous enough and good enough and godly enough to judge the entire world? What is the proof? All right, Paul answers. Verse 31, he has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And that's when they sat back and began to stroke their beards. Paul might have said, hey guys, I didn't read about this. I didn't read about this because no one's written about it yet. Fellas, I came to the place in my own life. It happened. It was an event. And I know the people who were eyewitnesses to this. I have talked to them. I talked to the people who saw him alive, his heart beating again. He was alive. And I am here in Athens right now at this moment, absolutely convinced that God has done something new on this planet and he has raised a man from the dead. He gave us proof that he is who he claimed to be. He is not a Jew for the Jews. He is a man sent from God for the whole world. 
life-changing. And when they had heard about the resurrection of the dead, they fell on their knees and they repented and they set about destroying their idols and altars. No, they didn't. That didn't happen at all. <laughs> I made all that part up. Nobody flinched. Nobody flinched at all. But if this was just like a Bible story, that's exactly how it would have been written. But that's not what happened. Because this isn't a story. This is a real conversation in a real place between real people. Here's what happened. Verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. Of course they did. Of course they did. Because when people died, they generally stayed dead. That's what happened. Seriously. Paul, this is the proof. I mean, that someone rose from the dead. Get him out of here. Take, get him out of the Areopagus. We got better things to do. Hey, Paul, we might be a bunch of idol-worshiping Athenians, but there's one thing we know. People don't rise from the dead. Get him out of here. But others said, Luke records, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Most people who heard Paul, they were like, yeah, got to go. Got something to do. Razorbacks play at noon. I'm out. If this is the beginning place, Paul, we're, we're not beginning. We'll just go on unknowing. But a few people, a few people said, are you telling me that just a few years ago in a place that nobody wants to visit, Judea, you're telling me that you have talked to people who witnessed, saw for themselves this resurrection. And Paul would say, yes, that is exactly what I'm telling you. For the first few years, Paul would say, I didn't believe it either. I was doing everything I could possibly do to stamp out this cult, this knockoff Jewish cult called the way. But one day, I myself met, myself met the risen Jesus. So I'm here to tell you, God has done something in this generation as proof that he knows us and he loves us and God can be known. All of that to say this, the beginning place of the Christian faith is not what we have called and come to, to know, be known as the Bible. The beginning place for Christian faith is not just for someone to say, oh, you just have to believe. You just have to believe. The beginning place for the Christian faith, whether you were told as a child or not, the question is not, were Adam and Eve really naked? The question is not, did Adam and Eve have a belly button? The question is not, how did they get all those animals on the ark? The question is not, was there really enough water in the atmosphere and under the ground for the, to, to flood the entire earth? That was not the question. The question was not, was creation seven literal days or did those represent generations or millions and millions of years? That's not the question. I, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't know. I, I don't know. God didn't tell me. I don't know. You can talk about that amongst yourselves on the way home. That's not the question. That's not the beginning. Those questions are not the beginning of a Christian faith. The question, the foundation, the thing that you have to wrestle to the ground, if you're interested at all, if you're going to come back to faith and begin again or try to re-begin your faith, there's just one 
question that's going to be the foundation for beginning again and the foundation for maintaining your Christian faith. And that one question is this, who is Jesus? Not, is the Bible true? When Paul had this one opportunity with people that did not know anything about the story of Jesus, Paul begins with creation. He begins with the fact that God cares, and he goes to the point that God has revealed himself as a man. And if you have a hard time believing it, because of course you would have a hard time. Anyone would have a hard time. God decided to prove it because he knew that we were skeptical. And he proved it by raising that man from the dead. Because he is the Savior. He is the Lord of all. He is Jesus. And that is the beginning place for a Christian faith. That is is the question. And regardless of what happened to your Sunday school faith or whatever happened back in your past or whatever years back that might be, or whatever happened with your unanswered prayers, I've got some too. Or with the fact that God's not always as we would describe and think of as good. And that God does not always, it seems, reward good and punish evil, regardless of all of that. The only question that matters is, who do you think Jesus is? Because once you answer that question, as you will discover, as many people over the centuries have discovered, many of those other questions begin slowly to answer themselves. Paul left the hill that day, leaving them with only one issue to struggle with. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We're just beginning. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for preserving this text for us. Thank you for preserving this interaction. Thank you for taking us to the issue that has always been the issue. And we've allowed it to get fogged up by other issues. But the issue is and is alone, who is Jesus because if there is a resurrected Savior, that changes everything. It changes how we view the earth. It changes the way we view heaven. It changes the way we think about the afterlife. And it changes the way we value things here on this earth. And We confess that we are seekers. And in some cases, we have groped through the darkness trying to find out a way, just a way, and you said that we're not far off, so we pray, God, we pray that you would not be far off from us, that we would find you because we want to know you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. And I want you to know, friends, we're just beginning. This is week number one of eight weeks. Now, before we leave today, in just a moment, I'm going to dismiss us and we're done. No more music. We did all the music up front. Before we leave, I want to give you kind of a quick homework assignment. If you are not yet in a small group, please join a group today. Here are the groups that you can join in Stuttgart. They're, they're, they're listed right there on the screen. A Monday night group at 6. Be here Monday night at 6. Or be here Tuesday night at 6. Or be here Tuesday night at 6.30. We have two groups. That one's also going to be online. Or Wednesday night at 6. 
If you're a teenager, your group starts as soon as we're done and people leave today, right now, with a really good lunch, by the way, today. Be in a small group this week. Take a picture of this with your phone. Show up to one of these groups. If they don't already have your name, Go ahead, just show up here in this building to one of these groups, show up, and they will, they will add your name that night. Just be here. Show up to a group because they are going to, in these groups, talk about this week what we talked about today. So as part of these small groups, you're going to be answering a couple of questions. Here they are. How and when... Did your faith journey begin for you? How did that happen for you? What's the beginning of your faith journey as a child or a teenager or an adult? How well has your faith held up under the rigors of life? In other words, as life happened, as you saw injustice, as you saw pain and death and suffering, as you saw things that you deemed as unfair, as you saw in, in a teenage and an adult world things going on that didn't line up as a child. How did that fare? Tell us about that. In other words, where was your beginning place? And what's happened since then? Has your childhood faith supported you through the rigors of this life? Or did you find yourself trying to support your faith and prop it up and keep it going even though you didn't understand it and you're just like, it's all unknown. I just got to go. I just got to go with it. Tell us about that. And as you kind of discuss these questions this week, it's going to pave the way for where we are going to go and continue to go with this series. So with that, right now, I just simply say, we'll see you next week.